Hey, you. It's your best Sloan buddies, Rob. And Ken. <laughs> and uh, we're here for episode two. This is the furthering the conversation here about Sloan in 1998 and 1999. Uh, in this episode, we get into the album Between the Bridges. Uh, we go song by song. Uh, so let's get right to it. So we'll get to a song by song look at Between the Bridges soon. I think it's worth repeating a little bit of the timeline that was happening in 98 and 99. You know, even if you stretch back to the end of 97. Navy Blues already had, um, there were parts of Navy Blues that were already ready in December of 97, right? So in December of 97, um, we have the 4x4 CD sampler that comes out as a preview to uh, the release in in May of 98, um, indicating in some way that some of the stuff that they'd been working on in the fall and winter of of that year, 97, was already ready. So Navy Blues had a comparatively um, leisurely recording timeline, I guess, if you compare that with Between the Bridges, right? They managed to get Navy Blues pretty much recorded over the course of three months. Um, And then, of course, launch in May of that year, 98, uh, at the Intimate Interactive. We have that uh, on on May 26th. Um, The marketing that took place around around then, it's important to note. So the record was released on May 26th of 98. It went gold by June 12th of 98, which which is 17 days altogether. Uh, impressive to say the least, but also very much a product of the commercial push push that they'd been doing at that point in time. Yeah. And I think there were some secret shows going on in Toronto at that point in time. I, I recall um, they played the Trashateria uh, in and around the Intimate and Interactive, but they weren't playing, they weren't on tour uh, at the time of the release. They weren't starting the tour. They Their first big gigs following the release of navy blues were the edge fest shows uh which went from the end of june to sort of mid july of that year then they continued on a u.s tour on the first of two navy blues u.s tours which were 14 shows in 15 days uh like no biggie that was September, followed by <laughs> followed by a canadian tour uh which was a little bit less stringent in 17 shows in three weeks uh capped off of course with the four nights i believe in five days so they weren't four nights in a row uh at the palais royale in toronto to kind of bring it on home uh but then and as is alluded to in in the album itself they played japan uh in in november uh played a few shows out there and then just kind of hopped back to halifax and to newfoundland and labrador for for a few shows um so that you know that that was a fairly uh stringent timeline and somehow during that during that point in time they managed to um get the idea for the double live album on on its legs uh you know they managed to push ahead with kind of the um general thoughts for a potential second album release in 1999 which turned out to be between the bridges I like to think um, that Chris had the double live percolating for years. And I think that between the bridges was all but 
settled when navy blues ended up being a single cd you know or a single album rather like you know that that leftover stuff it's like and i know there was talk uh you sent me the article recently that jay had uh been an interviewee in where he talked about um that the label had wanted to push the date of between the bridges to avoid being released uh amongst some other big heavyweight albums at the time like matthew goodban and our lady peace and whatnot and that the band had decided to just release it you know, within that 16 month period, because it would have interfered with their tour schedule. So a lot going on, a Herculean task for sure. Very cool. Totally. And like, so they essentially between June of 98 and the release of between the bridges in September of 99, they really only had three complete months off. And during these three months, they managed to mix and master and market four nights at the Palais Royale which wasn't a small feat by any means of the imagine, you know, they're, they're a hands-on team. They're not just leaving this to the, you know, to some studio team. They're doing it themselves. This is um, largely DIY. Yeah. You got to give up for them. Wow. That's right. And they managed to find six weeks to record between the bridges. So, you know, granted a lot of the tracks were laying around in a fairly complete, um, in a fairly complete condition, but six weeks to push through an album that many feel is a concept album because of its cohesiveness is super impressive right so if you listen to between the bridges it doesn't really sound like those are 12 songs that have just been kind of diced together right these are 12 tracks that uh that are pretty much come cut from the same cloth so if you think about these were the leftovers of the navy blues sessions Right. These were the these were the songs that at the end of ninety seven, beginning of ninety eight, didn't make the cut for Navy Blues. Of course, there were a, new, a couple of new tracks in there as well, but this is the sum of leftovers from Navy Blues plus a couple of new tracks that were probably written on the road or on a tour bus, and the sum of the parts is for many Sloan fans their favorite Sloan album. Yeah, I think the, the uh, Double Cross, when it came out at the time, I recall seeing there was that YouTube video where they kind of had other musicians and whatnot, like Sebastian Granger and Damian Abraham and, and Jason Schwartzman's in there. And I think he tips his hat to Between the Bridges as being his fave. The the songs, they're tied together beautifully. They managed to fit that in also within these six weeks. So super productive time for the band and we'll get into the between the bridges tour itself at a later point in time but you know a little teaser for that one it's not any less rigorous than the 98 99 navy blues tours so navy blues we have four songwriters writing four distinct styles of music from my perspective we have andrew coming at a left field throwing down on the horizon which sounds like nothing that you ever heard in the sloan catalog before we have Patrick going full ACDC live wire. You know, we have a, a really eclectic selection of songs. Between the Bridges, although it's cut from the same cloth, lyrically, although it's cut from the same cloth from a songwriting perspective, from a production standpoint, I feel is a much more cohesive album. So this is Brendan McGuire. Um, I feel as though this is Slonocracy at its finest, really. Right. So it's obviously touted quite often. Everybody in the band has three tracks and this and that. But I think also just from a standpoint of, you know, what style are we really going to settle on here? How are we going to tie the tracks together? It's no wonder that people thought when they came out with this that this was a concept album about whatever. Right. So they take the most obvious reference. Oh, it might be a concept album about 
uh, nostalgia about Nova Scotia and about Halifax, although it really isn't, right? There are a couple of references throughout the album to that, but it, it doesn't necessarily have that as a unifying theme. What it does have as a unifying theme is kind of a production style. It's the first digitally recorded album that they did, but it still sounds like it's on two-inch tape, right? So there's a very whimsical production style about this. Um, not that there is super large amounts of reverb happening or anything, but if you listen to kind of you know, a good reference is always waiting for slow songs. Um, just the guitar tones on that. Jay's obviously a great mind for production as well, but there's there's some good references to Johnny Marr in there. It sounds like it's a better, you know, Brothers Gibb track than anything that Robin Gibb had ever written. Um, it's he's doing the Nile Rogers guitar style there, and it's all tied together perfectly. You think about there are probably three or four different guitars happening on this song, but it sounds so it sounds so agile and, and and almost like it sounds like AM radio because it, it's 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 pulled together so tightly, right? And this is happening all across the album, right? So it's it's very well balanced. The mastering is perfect. The vocally, I feel as though this is their best album. You know, these these are these are guys who are at the top of their game vocally, and I would I would challenge you to find an album vocally that sounds better than Between the Bridges. Yeah, it's a t- I mean, certainly at the time a tough one to beat. I mean, in their catalog in 1999, it's the one, you know, for me anyway. And I mean, you mentioned about Jay, like for me personally, Between the Bridges was the Jay Ferguson coming out party. Like he mm-hmm. was, you know, firing on all cylinders here. I keep saying that. Um, but, uh, you know, I love, he had he had the single with Lines You Men in 96 and Junior Panthers is just like near and dear. I love his songs on the other albums, but Between the Bridges here, like you said, you know, Take Care of the Poor Boy, he does. He sounds like a different person, you know, and, and just maybe it's because his songs here are sort of um, a little more upfront, a little more, yeah. you know, uh, danceable. They're just sort of more in your face. Like, don't you believe a word, you know, when it kicks in after so beyond me, uh, you know, we heard from the demos from Navy blues that he was sort of toying with this sort of style of a song. And I want to say that this, this J style, and we should get into this at another day. We'll do like it's a J episode where we kind of focus on his stuff. Cause I like to compartmentalize the different, uh, writers, singers, songs into different groups. Like, you know, Jay has his sort of like I don't want to say disco-y songs, but just sort of a song that sounds like Don't You Believe a Word. Just very far on the floor, drums and, you know, kind of mid-tempo. You got, the, you got the octaves, you got the octave riffs in the guitar. Yeah, like a 120 BPM, just something yeah. you kind of just kind of, just kind of groove with. And he's had tons of songs like that since, but as I recall, this is p- potentially the beginning of that type of song. Yeah, and uh, I mean, I guess like, like snowsuit sound is a little bit, but I mean, that's still very much in the early nineties sort of like pop rock influence. And yeah. so it's not exactly the same, but uh, you know, you got don't, don't you believe a word waiting for slow songs is sort of in that vein as well. And then take good care of the poor boy, which is such a great rocker. I mean, on the album, a, a highlight for me in an album of highlights and yeah. obviously written about uh, Rufus Wainwright, who they had toured that's with right. the previous year. Um just in fantastic song. I would love to go, by the way, track for track through this thing. You were talking about the NS earlier, if we could just do that for a second. Sure. Um, because you'd mentioned that, you know, obviously people at the time, and I think maybe even the band for the sake of promoting the album kind of leaned into the references to, to Halifax and home. And at the time, Patrick, I believe is the only one still living in Halifax. Um, had he moved had it, but had he moved to Toronto in 99 yet? No, he hadn't moved um, by, you know, intimate interactive well, Intermittent Interactive 98, I, I think he says, says he's still in Halifax, so perhaps he's still yeah. he's there. 
Um, because I feel as though that happened before. It definitely happened before Pretty Together. I'm trying to remember if it was, you know what? It was in 2001, I want to say. nine In 2001, Intimate Interactive, he's on there saying that he's still living in Halifax. Is that possible? Really, eh? There's no way. That could be. I don't know. We'll I to... feel like I, I ran into him in 2001 before, right around, yeah, right before uh, Pretty Together came out. And he must have been in Toronto at that point. We'll have Maybe to it was that. a splitting time deal. If you're anyway, hearing this, it means we didn't edit the show. Anyway, which is what you want. <laughs> you want you want the raw goods, guys. So, sorry, just to, to quickly go back. Other than Between the Bridges, which is a reference to the two bridges in Halifax, which are called... The, the uh, McDonald and the McKay Bridge. Thank you. I remembered McDonald and I forgot about McKay, which is uh, named after Ian from Minor Threat. Um, <laughs> which is, I think Chris may, might have had something to do with that, petitioning the city to rename the bridge. But um, yeah, so Between the Bridges, the name obviously in reference to the bridges and also a little bit of a tip of the hat to Between the Buttons by the Rolling Stones. Um, you know, other than a couple of things like the NS in the title, um, you know, Chris takes all by ourselves, which was originally all by myself about Chris Mm -hmm. in Toronto and kind of, you know, to that, to me, that song kind of feels like they're all by themselves in Toronto, but it it could also be that they're all by themselves in their career. There's a lot of layers there. Um, But going through the songs quickly. Yeah. Like when, before this came out, this was the first album that I heard previews of before it came out. Like when Navy blues came out, I had heard the single, I bought the album and I listened to the whole thing and I hadn't heard any of it before, but with between the bridges, I think either amazon.ca or some website, I can't recall which was selling it digitally or selling copies of it. And you could preview 15 seconds or something like that of the song on the website. You click on the website and preview a bit of the song. And I, the first thing I clicked on was the first song NS and I heard you lost the fight. You won the war. And it just, I was like, Oh my God. Number one, the album is opening with like a down tempo song. The it's, album's it, opening it's with Andrew. Andrew song. It's Andrew. And how cool does this song sound? The slap back drums. Like God, when that thing fucking kicks in, God, what a great, I mean, <laughs> I'm going to say what a great song with this whole album, but you know, the NS, Amazing. If we, can just, if we can just get into the produ- production of this again, and Brendan McGuire, um, you know, who is, I think by this point, and he, ha- he had been involved in one chord to another and in Navy Blues, um, in a, I believe in a lesser role. And, uh, but by this point in time, by Between the Bridges, had taken over the reins of production. And we continue that through Pretty Together, um, which I also feel is a fantastically produced album. But listen to the last like the outro bars of the ns and if you haven't heard it before there's some cowbell going on there and it just really kind of drives that tempo forward and changes the tension in the song for the last few bars and you wouldn't know it unless you listened with studio headphones really attentively but that's just one little tiny element that sets this production apart from the previous albums that have been that have been put out so you know, th- this is this is this is setting the bar sonically for um, for what's to come. Lo- As I was saying, love the NS, incredible opening track. Uh, it, it got me excited right, right off the bat. We're opening with Andrew, which I which I got to just I just have to check the old memory bank here. I don't think they've ever done since. Um, no. And uh, yeah, just what a great way no. to start the album, man. What what are, what are your thoughts? So the first thing that strikes you when you listen to the NS is is nothing. Um, because it fades in and i recall having bought the cd and going home and listening to it or maybe i was in my car 
No, I, I must have been. I must have been at home listening to it, popping in, into my, you know, Sony CD player, and then thinking that the CD is broken because I couldn't hear anything for the first fifteen seconds. Because that Rhodes Rhodes piano really does start off very, very quietly, and then somehow the fade in must be sort of an exponential curve, so it gets it gets loud at about you know the 15, 15 to twenty second mark, which is a nice way of introducing an album that, um, in many ways, is less in your face than navy blues so let's contrast the introduction from she says what she means to the introduction to the ns you know that's night and day right there um even though as we we've talked about a lot in this episode both albums are cut from the same cloth so that's the first thing that strikes you the Rhodes piano is the binding element throughout this album i feel as though that was also almost a last minute afterthought that was added um added to the mix but turned out perfectly through that Rhodes sound and for people who aren't familiar with a Rhodes piano it it, it doesn't have pre-amplification so you have to actually you have to put it through a guitar amplifier and there's a bit of distortion on it as well so that sound is a bit soupy in a way and the whole track is kind of soupy um, and i feel i feel as though it's produced perfectly um around andrew's vocals and I, i'd mentioned beforehand that it's it, for me one of andrew's best vocal performances not you know lyrically you kind of have to dive in there and think you know is this a song about nova scotia there's that one line which is kind of you know it's it's a it's it's a cheeky little line that andrew drops there about if you think that it's cold when you're swimming in the ocean it's hard to believe you're a nova scotian boy but you don't really get into any of that kind of halifax nostalgia that you that you see in marquee in the moon so it might just be a turn of phrase that lended itself well to being an introductory song to the album because there is that nod to the Halifax Peninsula in, in, in the name of the album. So for me, perfect opening track, a great counterpoint to She Says What She Means. And the production itself, as I as I mentioned beforehand, even just the way that it ends on a really kind of positive note, and Andrew's always switching from a minor verse to a major chorus, which is sort of an old trick from the 60s but it also the outro itself is also major again and the final chord from the ns which is going to be a a segues perfectly into so beyond me right there's a lot of wordplay going on in so beyond me chris takes um i know that we we'd heard this uh during the navy blues sessions as well and i'm you know i'm really disappointed that um he left out the line uh hey dj i'm taking over tonight uh, from from the final cut of so beyond me but it you know it's just it, it's it's a perfect um it, lyrically just a perfect example of chris's cleverness uh i really like in so beyond me pat's backing backing vocals to chris and you get that you know that 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 tension in the timbre between chris's and patrick's voices right so i think that Howie and Bard talk about John and Paul having the super voice or whatever when they're doing when they're doing their 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 lead vocals together, and you almost have that uh, in So Beyond Me as well. There's the same kind of production techniques that you see Brendan McGuire using in other places, other parts of this album, right? So little subtle percussive elements. If you listen closely, and I know that it's hard to in Chris songs to to define verse and chorus, but if you listen closely to the to the verse part, you can get some hand claps in the background. Um, they, at least they sound like hand claps. Um, and uh, what you know, what I like about this again is that it's a collaborative effort. You can see Chris probably 
pestering Patrick during the six week recording sessions, like, yo, I need a really quick outro to uh, so beyond me because it's not rounded off well. Oh, you've got that you've got that friendship song. Why don't we just throw in Jolene and then we can fi- then we have a bridge to Don't You Believe a Word. Right. So I'm not sure if that was intentional, but judging on the fact that they did this within six weeks and they probably had this as a shovel ready song, it would seem like a plausible explanation for that outro. Yeah. So Beyond Me is such a great song. It, I want to take a step back for just a moment to mention the Rhodes piano again. Makes an appearance, if, if it's its debut, it would be the 1997 Rhodes Jam 7-inch, which is sort of like a non-label, non-song, sort of just posthumous release. Just an interesting anomaly amongst the other Sloan singles and whatnot. Um, but uh, yeah, so that's my first recollection of the Rhodes piano being sort of front and center. Um, yeah. And Chris, Chris had purchased a Rhodes piano when he moved to Toronto or shortly thereafter. And it's the mint green one that you see in the losing California video, but it's not the one that they took on tour. Um, they both appear to be Mark one Rhodes's, So maybe we'll get some confirmation from some gear experts in the future, absolutely. but they appear to be the same generation of piano, which is impressive to me that they were able to round up two Fender Rhodes's from pretty much the same era to, be able to use that same sound on the road as they did in the studio. So my assumption is that the roads on the recordings is Chris's roads. Yeah. And I, and I like, I like that it makes an appearance in the losing California video, even though it's not being performed, like Jay is sitting behind it. Um, and I don't know how many, I'm, I'm sure there are you know fans out there who sort of understand that the losing California video is the, the various incarnations of the band sort of in a matrix style room, kind of, you know, all in different, portions of this sort of like flat background and they're sort of inter- interacting with each other at the end. Uh, and, and I love that the, 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 the shots of, uh, for example, when Andrew is up front with the playing guitar and Jay is just on the roads and he's just sitting there kind of bored cause he's not doing anything. Uh, I like Jay on the drums. I like Jay's you know, <laughs> kind of almost like suburban, suburban teen punk rock, garage band drum style but yeah i mean we, we don't see it we haven't seen it prior and we haven't seen it since jay on the drums you know let's i we should get a petition for jay, for jay to be back on the drums again in some capacity um <laughs> make it happen guys come on um but anyway yeah so so beyond me you know it, it's so with this album especially more than anyone I, you know, with with the songs sort of integrating and kind of coming in and out of each other you know never more uh, never more prior am I sort of, you know, expecting the next song. You know, I, I can't hear the end, of, and a, the end of the NS without, you know, Im- immediately it slamming into So Beyond Me and same with the next song that's coming as well. But um, lyrically love this one. Um, I, 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 I also miss some of the demo lyrics now that I've heard it. Uh, and for those who haven't purchased, I don't know if they're still available, but that Navy Blues box set has all the demos. It's incredible. And the So Beyond Me demo is great as well. It's just Chris, uh, you know, flying high with lyrics about they're going to go to, they're going to make it to Japan this time. You know, it's just, it's, it's just yeah. wishful thinking. And it's, it's a bit more up-tempo, maybe about five beats per minute more up-tempo yeah. on the demo than it is on the, on the album. So I think that it fits the, the, the final version of So Beyond Me fits a lot better into the, between the bridges mosaic, but that demo version, they could have released that as an off album 
b-side release to something absolutely and it's an interesting point too that chris is playing drums on this track as well uh up until the outro that you mentioned where patrick kind of comes in uh that when 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 patrick's part comes in at the end uh that is when andrew sort of takes over on the drums when the song sort of stops and starts again right um but yeah cool it's and and obviously now that when i when i know that i listen to it i'm like of course that's chris playing the whole time there's i i feel as though there's a really subtle cut in the production between when 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 Chris goes up to why is it seemingly so right yeah. and then Patrick cuts in just before that there's almost there it it feels as though oh well that's where Andrew comes in on the drums yeah well I think that that's what it is like that fill after he says that is where is where the cut is um, and I've I've listened to it a yeah, bunch of times now and I and it's it's really hard for me anyway to distinguish where the cut is so. Um, but really well done. Love that transition. And then speaking of transitions, you know, as the song dips out, it, it feels for a moment like yeah. the song is continuing because we're basically the same BPM and we go right, right. into Don't You Believe a Word. Um, and like I said earlier, you know, Jay had had Lines You Men in 96 and uh, I love his stuff on the previous records up until now, Navy Blues and so on, and Twice Removed, Smeared, but you know, this is the, for me, the strongest J album so far, for sure. Um, he's out, he, and then he's coming out of the gate with, don't you believe a word? And he's going to have songs like this for the next 15 years that are sort of a four on the floor, you know, up tempo number. And I think this is the first appearance of it. Super catchy. This was actually a single as well. Um, this was a single. So this is an interesting choice for a single. So I think that they were probably putting this out as a service to the song itself in some ways not expecting that it's going to get a lot of mainstream uh radio airplay and what i'm really disappointed about is that they didn't put out a video for don't you believe a word because it seems as though it would be a great song to and not even you know i I know that the budget at this point in time had really run thin but um the concept of the song itself is just it's a wonderful nostalgic tale as you mentioned as well, the whole the whole rhythm section on these prototypical J kind of AM radio disco era songs um, drives propels the thing forward with this wonderful momentum. And you know, I feel as though Jay probably was also a little bit more involved in producing the album than some of the other members of the band would have been, because the instrumentation um, and the mixing of his songs are just perfect right so you get in don't you believe a word you have that lovely climax after that kind of acapella vocal bridge where you know where they where you you get you get the multiple voices running can't you see that i've been all so long and it's there's some intentional distortion going on on, on that part of the of the song as well right so the they're they're redlining a bit of the mix here just to make sure that that climax really gets a bit of oomph in there. And that's, you know, that's a perfect trick. You know, if you going back to the, to the rhythm section itself, listen to the piano on this song. I want you to listen to the piano and the, the way that I'm, I'm assuming that they recorded the piano twice. They probably recorded left and right hand separately um, because you have some piano chords being played by the right hand. And then you have a single note always bam, 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 being played by the left hand. Um, and it just, it, you know, it's this wonderful locomotion throughout the song. It's so cool to just put on, don't you believe a word and just go for like a nice walk or something. Right. Yeah. So great. And like you said, you, we, we do get a bit of that panning here and there. Uh, like I said, I, I, I think the real first evidence of that 
is uh, in one chord to another where they're really doing a lot of panning and having things recorded separately. Um, but yeah, it definitely takes its front and center here. Um, it's interesting. It, it was a single, and it was also the fourth single from the record officially. There was Losing California Friendship. Sensory Deprivation technically had a CD single. Um, right, did, right. Don't You Believe a Word? And uh, we'll get into right. the, the, the B-sides that appeared on the... Um, the Japanese release. Japanese album. Yep. Um, but there was also a Don't You Believe a Word CD single that, that also had those songs included too, which is how I was able to get it um, in, in, at, at the time. Can we, can we just touch briefly on the lyrics here? Because I like that not just from a musical standpoint, but also from a, a lyrical standpoint, we get some clever, we get some clever J, you know, nuggets here. One of which being... She said, the only good thing about the weekend is that Monday is two days away, which is a line that just pops out to me when you listen to the song for the first time. And this is, this is again, a sort of a, a, a signature of Jay's, is writing about a girl, a woman, from a very distant standpoint. And this woman's always got a bit of a mystique, and she's always got a really kind of weird, fascinating character. And, you know, it might be almost a macabre character in some ways. And you get a repeat of this, you know, both musically and lyrically later in Beverly Terrace. So in some ways, I feel as though Don't You Believe a Word is either the older sister or the prequel to Beverly Terrace, right? In in Beverly Terrace, you have a very similar rhythm section, a very similar song construction. And you have the woman who wears sunscreen in the middle of winter to remind her of summers that were kind, right? So this is an element that gets pulled throughout Jay's career. And I I like that that's a a point of continuity now. And this is obviously the starting point for that type of song uh, during, you know, in, in, in Jay's um, in Jay's catalog. Yeah. Even going back to snowsuit sound on twice removed, Jay's definitely the one singing to her, you know, singing to the woman or the girl, um, which is a very, obviously it's a very Beatlesy thing to be doing, uh, especially early Beatles. But I mean, Beatles aside, this is a uniquely Jay Ferguson move. Um, yeah. Like you said, he's probably in the canon of the songs. I'm trying to think of if there are any other examples of this, but where he's really got somebody he's singing about singing to, uh, and it's it, Cleopatra. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, he definitely gets into the. There's the Cleopatra era where I think there are a couple of albums right. uh, dedicated to that person. But um, yeah, for sure, he's definitely at this point singing to her, and um, you know, very very unique voice there. You know, uh, um, what was I going to say? <laughs> uh, yeah. In terms of lyrics, it, it, Jay with the great with the great one liners. You know, it's 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 a popular anecdote that uh it's not the band i hate it's their fans from coax me is actually jay's line um about kate bush (laughs) (laughs) oh is it about kate bush i didn't know that i've you know there are theories okay that's interesting that's an interesting one if that's true uh i've actually been listening to a lot of kate bush recently and crying my eyes out but uh anyway (laughs) but uh anyway so yeah i don't know if there are any final thoughts for you and don't believe you don't uh, you believe a word but um yeah Let's uh, let's wah wah our way into friendship, <laughs> as as we as we um, do. Yeah, you know, it's a lovely song, Patrick. Why did you have to just start with Jolene? You know, it. I think that that prevented friendship in many ways from becoming a more successful radio play because you just think about Dolly Parton as soon as the song starts. <laughs> That's my only beef with the song. 
the vo- you know vocals on this song are, are perfect you know patrick's voice as i mentioned before on this album is just perfect and he's doing all his own backing vocals and they mesh perfectly it sounds like a fucking mellotron you know it's just it, it, it's just so on tu- on tune um I just can't get over that first word. I'd heard about this, you know. It's, yeah, I'd heard about this sort of controversy that they, when they played Conan, for example, it was on this album that they were on. Uh, and I don't recall if this was their first appearance on North American TV, but uh, at least on American, it was their sec- it was their it was their second American TV appearance after Oddville uh, or Oddsville, which was '97, where they played Good and Everyone, and there were mascots dancing around right, them. Okay, so. Yeah, we won't talk. In terms about that. of late, late night TV in the states, <laughs> they played uh, "Losing California" on Conan, and I think at the time the single was "Friendship," yeah. and there was a decision made like, "Oh, we're going to do right. "Losing California," so that the first thing you hear yeah. out of somebody's mouth uh, in Sloan on national TV is not Jolene. But uh, honestly, Jolene. I didn't know at the time as a fan i had no idea that the dolly parton song existed and i love this song but right out of the shoot he's like he's full-on patrick voice you know just out of nowhere he like the song slams into what sounds like a chorus you know uh and yeah and, and, and so with so many sloan songs and this is a no exception just the the verse the pre-chorus everything just sounds like there's like four choruses going on um and you get you get the nice layering riff baseline drums as the intro to the song right. which is which is again losing california and muddy syndicate maniacs right so patrick has the formula down uh for for navy blues and for and for between the bridges yeah so good and as we heard on it's an interesting uh introduction of a character at least on, on this record where jolene makes an appearance firstly in so beyond me and now here is her song um so yeah, an interesting. I, I like that. With there, there are some films. I'm trying to think of an example where a character. I, this is not a good example in the slightest bit, but uh, David Fincher's Fight Club, where before you see Tyler Durden, there are some <laughs> flashes of him on the screen in previous scenes, uh, and then and then you finally meet the character. Um, <laughs> we get some Jolene and so beyond me. Yeah, she, she makes an appearance and then is later in Friendship. Um, but yeah, I. I it's gonna. This is the first Patrick song on the album. It's a fantastic intro to Patrick on the album, even though he's vocally been there in So Beyond Me, but here he is now with his own song. Um, I love this song. I love this video. I love that they recorded it live off the floor, that the video is the audio from them performing as opposed to it being just like them miming along to the song. Um, I think this is what perhaps the coax me video should have been you know like just the band performing and um it's obviously a reference to there's a late 60s early 70s it was a bootleg at the time led zeppelin video of the band in black and white sort of flanked by kids sitting in a semicircle um right and that's that's where the sort of theater in the round exactly that's where the sort of aesthetic for the video comes from um and i love it and i have on good authority that because uh, obviously at the end of the song, you hear them going into um, all by ourselves at the end of the uh, friendship. Uh, because I, this is the other thing interesting, interesting thing too, which, which I'd like to ask you about, which is that this album was actually in a different order, and so some of the songs go in and out of each other hmm. in different ways. And I think the the original well, we have a we have a break we have a break between 
friendship and sensory deprivation there is no segue between those tracks it's on the same side of the album but there's nothing happening mm-hmm. right and and as far as I, I recall if you listen to friendship and then skip right to all by ourselves that is the original transition is that it just kind of the song that friendship sort of the last note hits and it's just you know um, and you hear that actually right. for a moment at the end of the friendship video you see you see and hear them going into all by ourselves and every time i see that i'm just like god i want to just keep watching this concert you know i want to i just want to see where this goes uh and th- that footage exists i can confirm and we should get another petition going that that footage be released um that might be a that might be that might be an episode unto itself <laughs> that between the bridges concert tape uh in the theater in the round which wasn't really around but they had to move the stage around a bunch or the kids or whatever but cool concept um, and also a nice a nice um, point of speculation. What would the album have been like if Friendship uh, moved into All by Ourselves, and if they ended the side side one with Sensory Deprivation? Mm. Yeah, and just and I think the, the only reason that, that that we don't go right into All by Ourselves is, is that we get um, perhaps another Andrew song. I know that they like to balance out who's singing when, so that you don't necessarily have two of the same singer back to back. Right. So, yeah. So we've had Chris already, and there's just another. Before we get into Chris again, we're going to kind of restart the lineup again and have Andrew come in. Um, and 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 it's also it's also great too because we haven't really had like a really crazy upbeat track, and it's 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 it's, no. it's, it's a good time in the album to kind of give some of that Andrew Scott wildness here. And man, I know in the making of there was a song called. Uh, they had alternate titles for some of the songs and I know that blood pressure was one of them. And I, I can't, I don't recall That's if right. blood pressure yeah. and sensory deprivation are the same thing. Um, I believe I've so. always thought that blood pressure was sensory deprivation. Um, so let's just say. That- so I remember, I remember uh, reading Sloan hut um, shout out to Al in 1999. And he had some inside insider information, probably from Mike Nelson, um, as to the actual, um, I, I'm, I'm sure they were just mastering the album at that point in time, but the, the finalization process of Between the Bridges and you had the names of the songs um, and the lineup and Blood Pressure was definitely on there and it was the only name of a song that could that wasn't taken really um, by, by a final song on the album. So, you know, I don't have that in front of me. Oh, I do have that in front of me what I think about every time when I listen to this song, is just like this song was just bound to happen, right? This is just a periscope into Andrew's brain. And I know that it's a lovely caricature of altered states. And I know that, you know, Andrew had very much liked that film during that year. At least he was on his trading card as his favorite film. Um, and it just feels as though stylistically, this is, this is Andrew Scott left to his own devices. You mentioned the trading card, which you sent me a photo of, which I hadn't seen in forever. Um, and, and I love the yeah, Altered States, which is obviously referenced in the song, is mentioned here as his favorite movie. Um, and really, this album, too, uh, more than anything, this is the time when I think that they really start to play up the four different characters and paint themselves yeah. um, in, in sort of the kiss, you know, uh, outline in the, in the same way that the Beatles were, where they're really highlighting the fact, I mean, obviously they've got equal songs now, everybody's on here and represented equally. So they're really 
relying and sort of leaning on and, and sort of presenting the fact that hey there are four different people here and they and they really turn themselves into sort of characters and i love that his favorite band is is can which is one that i wouldn't have expected can um Crow you know, rock baby yeah like oh just so cool man of course andrew's band would be can uh of course i mean he could be taking the piss out of us this whole time because he gave his favorite color is shark skin gray which is, just seems like an absurd thing to say like you know but i you know he's just he's he's so he's so into his own um his own persona in so many ways which also changes over time that this appears to just be a, a snapshot of andrew's persona in the summer of 1999 doesn't it absolutely and i and i love sensory deprivation too i mean this is the most andrew song of 1999 like it's so perfect it's just it's wild lyrically he's got the big vocals yeah. you know which are probably andrew singing with himself but you know every time i've seen it that's right seen yeah. it live when chris is joining him it just sounds amazing just the stacked harmonies are awesome and it's just a wild one it, it, it makes an appearance on the sloan website at the time they had those little mini movies that they were doing <laughs> with uh, chris and jay right. when they did the australian tour and this is the uh, soundtrack to that um that's right. That's right. <laughs> perhaps no, a, memories here. Perhaps a stylized video as the as the song was technically a single for a moment there, but uh, uh, but yeah, I mean that's what it makes yeah. me think of it. The song is just wild, and it makes me think of you know that that the Australian you know promo clip, and uh, you know it's another favorite one to this day that I you know even in recent years I can recall seeing it live, and you know I really yeah. do hope. I mean we're not even half. We're not even halfway through the album here and you know my hope is that these guys do a between the bridges box set we gotta have it i mean i know a lot of the, the demos appear on navy blues um but this is such a rich album song wise and i don't know what there would be in terms yeah. of b-side material and bonus features and stuff but uh it's so great i would love to hear any alternate alternate versions of these songs uh and i would love to see a tour yeah. of this album it just flows so perfectly and um i know yeah. that this one didn't hit as big as navy blues did perhaps with sort of the mass populace um it's the third in the year and four months it's the third release so um you know i think it maybe takes a back seat to navy blues in some respects but like you were saying earlier like this is far and away at this point between the bridges is now my favorite sloan album at the time in terms of just like every song is a killer uh and sensory deprivation yeah. is absolutely uh no slouch <laughs> sloan take our money um, <laughs> just do your work and take our money so you know I, I can confirm here blood pressure was the working title of of sensory deprivation according to uh chartnet's dam from the 13th of july 1999 so they made a last minute decision to to change the name of the song and the working title for all by ourselves which is the last track on on side one was all by myself um i think it was again probably a last minute decision to change that and or this is just mis misinformation from chart um but the song itself and i think we can talk again about um autobiogra autobiographical sloan songs especially coming from chris obviously a tip of the hat to um sloan and its career and i'd heard recently uh, during the chris murphy acoustic uh, virtual concert that uh, this was a song at least in part based off of uh, somebody wanting to write a biography about the band 
and uh then them kind of responding you know if we if we do that we want to write it by ourselves right because this is a you know how you're supposed to get an accurate depiction of what we're up to from an external perspective clever wordplay as usual for me this is the stonesiest sloan song if you listen to just the construction of the song in general but listen to the drums that's a that's charlie watts playing like just very very simple but very powerful driving um you need a three-piece kit to play it it's easy uh the bass line is totally uh bill wyman and the guitar riffs that you have on there it almost sounds like like they're playing it open e which they probably aren't because i'm not sure that andrew or chris would have ever open tuned their guitar at this point in time um but especially in the outro listen to those riffs that's keith like this this is the stones the only thing that's different is chris's vocals which you know mick can never approximate uh i love it um it's a fun um it's 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 an homage to to early 70s brit rock from my perspective but the lyrics themselves are just they're they're way out there and only chris could pull that off again such a great song it it was originally all by myself i think chris has mentioned that this is him having moved to toronto he feels by himself and having to change all the numbers in his directory for you know having to add 902 to call people in nova scotia long distance um and i and i've always felt that this song is a bit of a sister song to set in motion where this one is about you know uh a book and then based on the novel is the film from set in motion um so i've kind of felt like these songs are a little similar ish um i think similar even in tempo maybe as well but uh, i definitely hear you on the rolling stones thing there's a great moment on this uh tour the promo for this album uh they played losing california on the mike bullard show uh, and for listeners in canada everybody will be familiar with mike bullard from the mid to late 90s um Chris, he played left wing for the Toronto Maple Leafs, didn't he? <laughs> Did he really? <laughs> That's a hockey joke. There's a there's a hockey player called Mike Boyd. Okay. He doesn't look at all like the the Mike Boyd. Right. I would. Yeah, that makes more sense. <laughs> you, you got me there for a second. But uh, yeah, so Chris is on, and I think he's in his. I I recall he's in his Cinnaminimus shirt or whatever the one is, the red shirt. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah it's yeah, it's yeah, a great yeah, performance, yeah. and it's in 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 you know Patrick is singing lead on Losing California, and Chris is just hot dogging in the background. Uh, it, it's a classic Sloan on TV performance. And of course, Chris is the, is the interviewee in the next segment, which is a fantastic yeah. one. I'll have to find it and l- upload it to YouTube because it's a classic Murph interview. And so the, 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 the performance itself of this song is on YouTube already, but the interview I believe has been cut, which is very unfortunate. Okay, I'll have to make sure that hopefully by the time you're listening to this, you can go to our, to our uh, YouTube channel and, and find it. Um, but uh, cause I definitely have it digitally, but it's a, it's a fantastic one where and i won't go into the whole thing I'll, I'll you know i'll let just murph perform it himself when we see the video but basically you know bullard he's basically the whole interview is him trying to show that he's a great interviewee for tv and that he can be the volley to mike's spike he's just going to set up mike for some great jokes and stuff and so he's so anyway bullard asked him what his favorite band is a sort of stock question and by the end of the interview chris is kind of like hoeing and humming about what he's going to talk about and he just sort of out of nowhere goes oh i don't know the rolling stones you know like he kind of has a great little callback (laughs) joke it's a great little bit of comedy uh and and you can see the you see on mike bullard's face right away that he gets it and he how much he appreciates chris as a guest uh and chris just knocks it out of the park with this one um and, and moments later, when Bullard mentions that Moxie Fruvis will be a f- future guest, and Chris just gives us a big old hey like, 
great moment. Anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, he there he is mentioning you know the Rolling Stones. So you, you're bang on, you know, with the Rolling Stones references uh, in terms of production and 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 uh, performative references. Uh, there he is saying for everybody to hear that the Rolling Stones are for, for sure one of his favorite bands, if not the favorite. Um, so yeah, um, amazing song all by ourselves. I love it. Um, and, uh, and, and Chris is wearing his heart on his sleeve here too. I think he more than anybody in the band too is, is the one who's the most self-referential and he is really the keeper of sort of the Sloan, um, the history of the band and sort of, you know, there's a, in the, in the, uh, build up to the double cross, he mentions, you know, sometimes I just lay out all the, the Sloan album. I just lay all the album covers out, you know, in a visual, like on Photoshop. And I just go, yes, you know? Uh, and he says it here at the end of the song, he says, keeping in mind, I believe that we're history makers. You know, he's talking about himself. He's talking, what story do you think you're affecting? Yeah. <laughs> he's talking about the band and, um, and and I couldn't agree with him more. You know, I think that in terms, of, yeah. I would hope that going forward they're remembered as a band that uh, you know were so unique in in every way, and uh, and this album is no exception. It's just fantastic. Did you have any other thoughts about all that? What a way to wrap. No, I just want a way to wrap up side one, right? Mm, fantastic. Um, it- that the climax, the climax of that song from nothing's for sure is for sure. Oh yeah. Great. And then they get into the last, the last chorus and the turning and tearing out part is the really fun, is the really fun way to end the album with Patrick and Chris, just, you know, hammering that one out. Um, just son- sonically perfect. Right. And that driving Chris, uh, Charlie Watts drum line in the background. Yeah. Perfect, perfect. Great way to end side one. Uncharacteristic of the, of the rest of the side of the album, but that's you know what we're in it for. As much as in as much as between the bridges from a production standpoint is very, very uh is very cohesive. It's also very diverse from a songwriting perspective. And that's actually a great, I think, a great segue to Long Time Coming, which is an odd way to start the side of an album, right? A uh, down-tone Patrick Pentland song, which if I listen to this over and over again, I get more and more convinced that this might be my favorite Patrick Pentland song. Mm. It's just perfectly written. It's perfectly balanced. It's built perfectly. Listen to Patrick's lead vocals. Listen to that voice. Listen to the earnesty um, the earnestness in his voice. Listen to him doing his own backing vocals, the instrumentation, right? The, so you have a, a, an acoustic rhythm and then you have some uh, electric riffs being played throughout on the uh, neck pickup, which, which just sound beautifully silky. Um, and then you have that subtle Rhodes backing throughout the piece so i'm assuming they got andrew to just play some fills on the roads for the song uh in c uh and it just sounds it just sounds perfect right building up then to an outro solo a multi-track outro solo which is any kind of an outro guitar solo is going to get my attention and then you get a multi-track 
outro guitar solo which is something that we hear later in three sisters from jay and i you know maybe it would be nice to have a face-off episode between the guitar solos at some point in time because i feel as though these would be some maybe the final two um but the solo itself is just beautifully it's not complicated it's not virtuous virtuoso in any way it's just so melodic and fits with the sentiment of the song perfectly so this is you know patrick put putting his heart out onto his sleeve and and cranking out from my perspective possibly the best song of his 30 year solo career so far no pressure it's it's fantastic and i'm so glad you you brought up the guitar outro and the solo um this might have been the first time i heard the word guitarmanies referenced you know um and anybody who's right. ever had the pleasure and I, and I know at the time that they were doing this live the, the song going into a long time coming uh is an andrew song and um in the original edit and so he's on guitar for this song at least live anyway like chris is on drums uh and so those guitar minis at the end it's andrew actually i'm, I'm sorry andrew is is playing P- uh, Rhodes on the previous song and so right. uh and he's and he's i think he might even be playing the roads on this song too live uh and then right before they get to that outro you know unexpectedly andrew picks up a guitar and so when that guitar mini happens at the end that's andrew playing with patrick live for those of who have ever had the pleasure of seeing this song live and it's another one that man i know it's not like a big single or one that you know every single you know underwhelmed sloan fan is super familiar with or wants to hear but this is just such another great one live and, and another reason why i would love to see a tour you know uh 20 year yeah. or whatever 25 year anniversary tour for this record because this song is so great and such an awesome moment at the end uh something you don't see which is andrew and patrick soloing together essentially and kind of creating a guitar mini great little moment there that's the incredible you know, I didn't. I don't. I didn't recall that. I'd only seen one, technically one show on the Between the Bridges tour, and I can't recall that having been on the set list. And I remember at that point in time that they weren't playing Long Time Coming very frequently on tour for whatever reason. And you know, rumor had it that they were that they you know tripped over live performances of it quite quite frequently, and that they were reluctant to play it live. But you know, if if what you're saying is true, that would make a for an incredible live experience, but b technically just for a completely different way of of thinking for the band, which I can understand is hard to pull off, especially in that phase in their career. Right? We're talking about '99, them having been on the road basically for a year and a half, mm. and having stopped into the studio for for six weeks to record the damn album. Um, they didn't have a rehearsal space at the time because they were touring the whole damn time because Patrick lived in Halifax, right? So, how are you supposed to pull this off live? If you had, I mean, well, we'll just put Andrew on keys and you know you can do the solo with him, Patrick. Have fun. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah, I hope I'm not speaking out of school when I say that the only song now that I'm looking at the track list that makes sense to have gone into the song would be the NS. So then, that means that the NS would have potentially been mid album originally and tra- and and, uh, mm-hmm. and then transferred into a long time coming but i've always thought of this song too being a bit of a part of a trilogy for me with patrick the past two years here 98 99 um long time coming i think is sort of a cousin or sister song to stand by me yeah and i'm not through sure. with you yet um three of his best uh and they just paint a really different color on this record than the other songs. He's got that sort of subtlety and you can always count on Patrick for a couple things, which is, you know, a great, awesome, catchy rocker and a song like this, which is just sort of a mid tempo, 
very easy to listen to, you know, beautiful song and long time coming is, is, is incredible. And that solo at the end is, is a highlight here for sure on the record. And then, yeah, from that solo into uh, the sort of, if you will, sister or cousin song to Don't You Believe a Word in terms of tempo. And, you know, we're back with Jay with that hot AM uh, Brock number, Waiting for Slow Songs. Fan favorite. Mm-hmm. Fan favorite. Absolute fan favorite. Is this the signature? If you were to describe Jay Ferguson's writing style, and I know he's got a really eclectic writing style, but if you were to describe it or ha- having to show it to somebody in one song, would this be the song that you played to them? Oh, tough call. I mean, yeah, I think this would be one of them for sure, if not the one. So what do we got? I mean, we, we get some recurring we get some recurring themes here. There's the school dance slash, you know, dance party theme that gets pulled through a few of Jay's yeah, songs. There's the Junior Panthers the theme, for sure. Yeah, right. There's the uh, Can't You Figure It Out also features that as well. Um, so this is taking place in a few of his songs. There's that whimsical, distant homage to his crush in many ways. Like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm at this, I came to this party for you and you have to leave already. You only just arrived. And it's, oh, you know, so it's, all, you know, very kind of distant looking up to the girl that he's crushing on. Perfect song to be listening to as a 15 year old boy i think in many ways which is why it spoke to me so early in my phase of sloan fandom because you know if you're if you're a teenage if you're a teenager either a boy or a girl you've gone through this um so it's i think that jay writes perfectly for he- teenagers doesn't he? and i think he still does <laughs> absolutely well he he definitely is 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 keyed into a moment, you know, and I don't know if if these moments, you know, the 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 party, the the dance in the basement from Junior Panthers, is this same dance he's referring to here? Um, this is a weird reference, but <laughs> he's somewhat like Jandek in this way, where Jandek, for all of the Jandek music, you get the impression is just a memory of something that happened being relived from right. multiple angles. Yeah, and uh, yeah. you know, and and and, the, and Jay throughout the years is remembering this moment or this person. Um, very nostalgic, very nostalgic. very much so, and so, and I feel like Jay is sort of that way as a person, you know, like in terms of a record collector, and you know, you, you get the sense that he just really enjoys kind of retro stuff, and so, so yeah, just interesting from that perspective. Um, and in and, and, and the song title itself, "Waiting for Slow Songs," I mean, there's a reference to slow songs in the "Everything You've Done Wrong" video, um, which for yeah. people who don't know, the name Sloan is sort of taken from their friend. I want to say the person's name was Jason Larson. This person appears on the uh, Peppermint EP uh, on the cover. And he was a friend of the band who's sort of French speaking boss. I think referred to Jason as the slow one at his job. Um, But with the accent, you know, Jason is the slow one, which sounds, which sort of slurs into Sloan. Um, And so could waiting for slow songs be waiting for Sloan songs? Um, which is what I think I'm always doing at, at, all, at all hours of the day. Uh, and just a funny little note here, a little plug uh, for the family. My brother made a, a, a film actually in 2008 for uh, his student film uh, here in Toronto. And it was about Jay, like a little sort of mini doc on Jay slash Sloan. And it's on Vimeo. You can look for Waiting for Slow Songs, Jay Ferguson. Uh, the, the production company is Bamboo Pictures, which is a B-A-M-B-U uh, nod to Dennis Wilson. 
Uh, but anyway, yeah, it's oh, a great little, wow. it's a little great little bit of business. It's not too long, and you'll and you'll see me in a cameo at the beginning playing Jay's Butler. So have fun googling that, folks, and uh, get back to me. Leave leave a comment on the video. <laughs> That's perfect. We'll, we'll, we'll link to that in our Instagram channel Super. for everybody. Um, probably in our, in our bio. Um, when you first, for slow songs for slow songs, again, um, highlighting Brendan McGuire's production and Jay's, um, I guess insights into production and, 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 and in- instrumentation listen just co- in a concentrated way. When you do have the time to the four or five guitars that are happening across this song, and tell me that you heard that the first time you played it because you hadn't um there's just so much happening with the guitars and the layering of the guitars um there's i think the solo that he plays between the verse and the chorus i think that's an octave solo i think he's doing it on, on on two separate strings it just sounds so good right and it's there's so much happening in terms of instrumentation in the song but it's 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 mixed so perfectly and there's so much space put between the instruments um and mastered so well that it doesn't sound heavy at all it sounds exactly exactly the opposite of heavy it sounds like you know am airwave bliss um you know so this song was that was before i knew all 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 the stuff about instrumentation and everything this this song was already a favorite for me um partially for that reason but then you get that that perfect balancing act with the lyrics that he's writing and even just you know you can you can say okay this is cheesy he's he's writing a song about his crush but then you get the chorus you write the could you write the saddest song turn around and make it a sing-along which is just it's just a perfect you know idea to have for for this type of a melancholy i'm reaching out to you but you're not paying attention to me song and speaking of singing along <laughs> waiting for slow songs kind of fades out and we then kind of have the uh, first whiffings of the intro to the next song which is losing california uh which when i first heard i have to admit i think i've maybe mentioned this to you previously but um at the time in 99 for whatever reason i was just really getting into fleetwood mac rumors and i don't know <laughs> if this is just one of those weird things about the universe i, I was noticing on facebook recently because they have the facebook memories um i don't know if you're if, if you're listening to this in the year 2050 if facebook is even a thing but at the time it was a thing that we it was like myspace um obviously in 2050 everybody remembers myspace but anyway uh, <laughs> i've noticed that in yeah and uh, that you know I'll, I'll be i'll just have sort of a desire to either watch a movie or listen to a song or something and then like the next day facebook memories is like you know it's me watching that movie or listening to that song from like 13 years ago you know just a weird cyclical mm. thing about the universe and fleetwood mac rumors was a big thing for me and i loved secondhand news it was like my favorite song at the time and it's got that sort of like galloping drum beat kind of through the whole thing so when i hear on the radio i'm like hey fleetwood mac cool and then all of a sudden but again like the guitars start kicking in for losing california and it's a new sloan signal like oh it just totally hit me by surprise kicked me out of left field and one of the best intros to any of their songs and especially a super exciting single fantastic dude watching this live amplifies that excitement because you can see andrew getting revved up on the drums Mm -hmm. and this is this is one of the songs where he, he can just go balls out right there are a few songs in the catalog where i think that they almost just let him like do whatever the hell you want live 
Um, you know, you don't don't worry about consistency between performances. Don't worry, don't worry about being true to what we did on, on the album. Just do you know what you want. And this is one of them from my perspective. Yeah, I don't know if the if the drum fills here are sort of because Chris has mentioned in the past that Supergrass was a big influence on that the Sloan drum style, which I think really kind of came into its own on one chord and definitely on Navy Blues. It's not it's not sure, really yeah. there on twice removed twice removed is just sort of they're they're keeping the drums pretty basic there are some fills but it's it's nothing uh crazy um but uh yeah in, in this instant in, in this instance here it's essentially just the drums are falling down the stairs before we kick into uh, the first lyric uh which is he hit rock bottom which is i think at the time the, the working title of the song which is rock bottom um oh, potentially wow. a kiss reference uh i failed to mention earlier with uh with long time coming the first line being i walk the line for you um which i think patrick has said was potentially a johnny cash reference um so lots of references and alternate song titles here um but yeah losing california fantastic and, and an interesting thing too like it's 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 patrick's song he's singing the whole time but this is another one that i really feel like like you mentioned with the john paul super voice thing you know I, I, as far as i know on the recording this is patrick and chris together um yeah just all of the harmonies for the chorus here um there's a great little moment and i'll have to put this online as well there's a great interview with chris from california when they played the troubadour uh, in either late 99 or early 2000 and he <laughs> he had gone full california so he's got like you know the sunscreen on his nose and glasses and he's wearing a lifeguard t-shirt and he's got a towel and he's he's talking like this dude <laughs> uh anyway so he <laughs> giving the impression that they'd gone full california um that's what kind of i think of <laughs> uh when I, when I hear this song when i read these lyrics but uh um yeah I loved how this was a staple of their live performances for such a long. We do get it every now and then still in 2020, but I wish that if they're doing, if they were doing a album set in the first half and the greatest hits or sort of a mixed bag set in the, in the second half of their shows that losing California would make it in at least half the time. Cause I just love seeing this live for the reasons that you're saying it's fun to watch, to watch them play this song. And I think you see that, very well in the in, in the conan clip mm. from 99 um obviously it's their first real uh network television appearance in the states and uh and they're trying to kind of make the most out of it so you can see i think you can see some nervousness again in that performance um patrick's kind of got the pete townsend windmill thing going on chris is doing some doing some mcjagger moves um trying to ham it up with the audience jay's like going onto his knees at some point in time. And Andrew, I think is just oblivious to the entire thing. Um, but it's fun to watch them play it. Um, and I love how it's a chance for not just Andrew to showcase his drum style, very jazz influence, but also for Patrick to showcase his effects board and his guitar skills. Great song to see live. Um, got really good radio airplay in Canada, at least at that point in time. And I can understand why I feel as though it might've been a little bit too soon after Monday city maniacs to have been a real success because it's another Patrick song. The formula is very similar, um, but it's a very good 1999 type formula as well. So you're hearing a lot of this type of music on radio at that point in time. I wonder though, you know, and again, this, this has been, this has been an element of speculation over the course of the years, but is it in some way about their experience with Geffen? Hmm. 
Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting theory. Um, I had actually never really thought of that. Some food for thought. Um, we don't have a definitive answer about this. My intuition is that it's not. My intuition is that Patrick is using California as a whimsical um, stylistic element um, it, or a symbol of ki- of a kind. <laughs> I like. I like it. It, it always kind of uh, struck me as a reference to the idea that California would just break away from the rest of the states, like it would just sink. There's a, there's a, there's a great. Uh, I think it's Bill Hicks. It's an Andreas. Fault. Yeah, there's a great Bill Hicks line where he talks about. Uh, uh, he's. He, I'm in L.A. Or should I say, L.A. And how his just greatest wish would be that California would break off from the rest of the continental United States, and then they'd have they'd call it uh, Arizona Bay. <laughs> so it's kind of it, it's always struck me in that regard that the song is sort of reference uh, in that direction. And the Losing California music video, which is I for my money awesome, you know, like uh, I think very um, ahead of its time. And, uh, you know, <laughs> I know the guys, uh, they probably spent a ton of money on it and it wasn't the, the, the greatest return, uh, compared to money city maniacs, but I remember it being all over TV and thinking the video was awesome. And the idea of Patrick soloing with Patrick and, uh, bored Jay at the roads. And, uh, I think it's, is it at the end that Patrick pushes Andrew and he starts crying? <laughs> he starts crying, yeah. Can, yeah. And that was out, that, that, that was uh, sort of a improvised moment. Um, definitely the highlight of Andrew's acting career with the band. <laughs> it's, um, and you mentioned that it got good airplay both on much and, um, on Canadian rock radio. And this was a point in time at which the Canadian music media were very, very appreciative of Sloan. Um, I'm not sure how losing California fared in the States. I'm really not sure how between the bridges altogether fared in the States. I think we hear a lot about it being a bit of a commercial flop for various reasons. And I think that one of them is that you can only saturate the U S market with so much of this Canadian band, uh, over the course of, of, of 18 months. And so what's the U S public supposed to do with losing California when they hear it? Right. So, I mean, college radio has been quite, uh, forgiving, forgiving to Sloan. You know, I, I know that I heard it a lot on whatever I was listening to in Ottawa, probably the bear or something in 99. Yeah. I mean, I know for sure on this tour, like obviously there's that much music archival footage of Rachel Perry interviewing Chris at the beach and he's like, uh, you know, gone Hollywood, Chris Murphy. You know, this would have been them selling out the Troubadour, at least for, you know, a night or two. They're being introduced to a very young Phantom Planet, Jason Schwartzman, uh, whose sister Sophia Coppola, or I guess cousin, uh, would have had them in the Virgin Suicides on that soundtrack, which I know for sure got them some play uh, in the U.S. Um, so, yeah. yeah, I mean, people are certainly, and, and obviously they would have had quite the impact from the early nineties as well in the U S. So they've definitely got those pockets in the States that are hotbeds, the coasts for sure. Um, so yeah, successful in that regard. Definitely. Uh, and this is, this, this is the point in time as well in which we see them establishing a fairly regular itinerary for their U S tours. Right, so they're hitting up they're hitting up the same cities and venues uh, in in many ways, and I think that this is something that really began uh, in the push for Navy Blues in between the bridges, and we still see them today, you know, twenty years plus later, hitting the same venues uh, where they do have a fairly loyal fan base, and that's been quite forgiving to them. So, 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and speaking of seeing them in specific places, the next song, the the, the marquee at uh, in Halifax, I've heard seeing Sloan in Halifax is a completely different experience and totally unique. Um, and I, and I've never had the pleasure, unfortunately of ever seeing them there. Um, but, um, the hometown club, the marquee, uh, which is obviously being referenced here in the song, the marquee and the moon, which I have to say when it came out, this was the standout song for me. And I don't know if it was Definitely. just because it sort of was different sounding, you know, it's kind of just got a build, uh, similar to work cut out from the B sides of the previous album, but it's, a, it's, it's a little slower, a little more plotting. Obviously, uh, Chris or somebody used the, audio i would assume they recorded this at for the four nights recordings where they've got an audience sort of clapping along to the beat um but it's sort of but it's an audience that's in the distance and uh for sure the highlight of the album for me when i originally bought it this song and just absolutely beautiful uh there's that incredible drum fill about halfway through before he gets into the last verse which yeah uh, yeah as a drummer i still have no idea what's happening there it's just absolutely beautifully all over the place and um yeah so just uh, it's interesting that you bring that up because as a non-drummer and I, i love the fill it seems to be almost an afterthought as a means of connecting the kind of bridge part of the song so the b part of the song with with the outro right i'm thinking that this is sort of a, a, a patchwork solution that worked out really well (laughs) absolutely i definitely think it's being performed by andrew it's got that finesse to it not that chris doesn't have finesse but uh i think chris is uh his strength is playing drums you know with uh i don't want to say ham-fisted or meat and potatoes but just he's got a great style to him and he's very loose Um, yeah but andrew definitely has like a finesse that's sort of hard to describe and put it, put your finger on. And I would love to do it just a whole episode talking about talk to some other drummer about the drums that are going on, on all these Sloan albums. Cause they're definitely, you know, Absolutely. for the fans, you know, if you watch that uh, action pack tour movie, uh, keeping the tour alive, keeping you know, the, alive. the number of people in there who are just like, you know, Oh my God, just the greatest drummer. You know, he's definitely one of those iconic drummers. Um, and even though the duties are often shared by Chris, at the shows, um, that's definitely a topic that I want to, uh, <laughs> touch upon again. Yeah. So you'd, you'd mentioned the Halifax music scene and, and Marky and the moon being an homage to, um, many music venues, uh, in the city of Halifax. Um, the foremost of which the marquee club on Gottingen street. Um, I've never had the privilege of being able to see Sloan play there. I, I've, I've seen them play in Halifax twice. The, uh, the Halifax music scene itself is very special, a very special thing, right? So Halifax is, um, the cultural center of the maritime provinces. It feels as though a lot of the people out there and from based on the time that I spent out there are very creative, right? And, you know, very kind of into exercising their hobbies because what, what else are you going to do? Right. If you, if you're, if you're from Digby or if you're from like Moncton, what are you going to do apart from learn how to play an instrument? So at that point in time, and this is a song that was, I guess, written sort of about, especially the late eighties, early nineties, um, club scene in Halifax, people migrating from all over the Maritimes to Halifax because they're in a band and they want to get exposure. The marquee was sort of the larger of, um, of the venues mentioned here. Um, a couple of the venues that 
are mentioned in the song are still around. So the Neptune is the Neptune Theater, um, which isn't just used for for concerts per se, but for um, for for theater in general. The Marquee is still around. It's called the Marquee Ballroom now, um, and a couple of the venues that are mentioned in the song are kind of you know the, the the names have been spun around a little bit and they might not exist anymore so i'm not even sure what the dog is um or the monkey uh i know that there's a bar called the wooden monkey uh, i'm not sure if there's an association there so if any of our halifax listeners uh are are tuning in at this point in time uh it would be good to know what the what the references are in marquee in the moon but well, it's a fun references, if anybody yeah. was pissed off by those previous comments as far as i'm concerned they can go straight to hell uh which of <laughs> course is a reference in the song to as far as i know in the marquee basement they had a little another sort of sub venue called that's right hell's kitchen that's um, right so yeah uh so that's that that makes the song and also i mean we're i mean in the liners of one chord i love that uh, chico t sanchez makes reference to a band that is able to spin lyrical bows like you know using words like sizzletine and cajole in previous records um and here is chris with onomatopoeia making an appearance in this song um so just the, the lyric quality word choice, it's just not something yeah. you get with other bands. And uh, even if it was a subtle, um, it, it's just not lost on a fan like me anyway. You know, even if it was a subtle something, hearing a line like, to me, buzzes on a manapia in a song is just, there's something really enjoyable about that. Uh, and you can count on Chris for that kind of lyrical wordplay. In terms of wordsmith qualities this song is right up there with any other chris murphy song from my perspective to take an idea like let's reflect on the halifax music scene at this point in time let's okay what were the clubs that we were going to what were some of the bars around town getting those names out and then tying them together in a in a, in a way that actually makes sense and in a way that doesn't seem contrived if you're just a casual listener you don't need to know what all these places are to understand what the song's about um, is just genius, you know. Opening lyric cabaret license, you know. It, you can't you can't make that up. If you're if you're pairing this with some kind of a super heavy um, songwriting style, if the, if the if the instrumentation in the song itself were were done in any other way, you just couldn't penetrate the lyrics because there is just this big wall of text. But it's it's tied together in such a clever way, and it complements what's happening musically in such a great way. So I love the musicianship in this song. I love that there's that um, that riff being played constantly on the guitar in the background, panning from Beautiful. left to right. Yeah. Um, I love the I love the way the piano is done in the song. I just love the reverb on Chris's voice um i love and i mentioned this beforehand i like that he's using almost his entire vocal range during this song so the last few words what did we used to do right super low and then the huge falsetto climax that i'm not even going to try to reproduce on there <laughs> and then you get that just accentuated that reverb on that balloon, right um that 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 you know that production style here it just fits perfectly and it's almost you know it's 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 very much in in a sense that it's for me a a top chris murphy vocal song i think brendan mcguire's production on this is impeccable 11 out of 10 yeah oh absolutely it's it's a top five murph song for me 
for sure. I never really f- felt the drum solo was something that was just tying two parts together, although it very well could be. Uh, it always felt very natural to me, but um, yeah, beautiful song, lots of really great, just musical moments happening. Just the way that this, the atmosphere of the song, it's, it's completely unlike anything else in the album. It's, it's unlike anything else in the catalog and, uh, and very, and very much standalone in terms of just pop music in general. Um, so yeah, a favorite of mine in the Sloan catalog for sure. A highlight on this album, um, and on, on an album like we've been saying, on an album of highlights. And speaking of album of highlights, uh, Jay Ferguson with I think his song on this album that was just the, uh, an incredible highlight for me. Take good care of the poor boy. Uh, we mentioned earlier being a reference to Rufus Wainwright, um, and uh, and obviously looking through the lyrics, it, it sounds like he's perhaps you know recounting touring with Rufus, you know, uh, and, and some personal anecdotes about pulling the alarm at a show. And, um, yeah, just a a great, um, recount, a personal recount. It sounds like of experiences with this guy who's a very unique individual and, uh, and, and a great song, even if you don't know who it's about a great rocker from Jay. And at this point I would say, you know, the last time he had a really great upbeat rocker would have been, you know, He's he's singing um, Pen Pals with Chris. He's got Snowsuit Sound on Twice Removed. Um, but that's really it up until this point, right? Because I don't, yeah. Because uh, one chord is ju- is is uh, the most he the most upbeat he gets would be Lines You Men. And then, of course, on Navy Blues, he's got this sort of two down tempo num- numbers that ultimately go somewhere a little more upbeat in, in the end, but in terms of the overall vibe, I mean, this is just a straight up rocker from Jay. And at the time I recall a, a real highlight live, um, you know, they would, in, at least in recent years at the end of the song, sort of end the song and then redo the outro again. Um, they would kind of kick back into the outro, uh, you know, Hey, poor boy, hey, poor boy, don't ever settle down. And uh, yeah, fantastic showing from, from Jay Ferguson here. And, um, yeah, a bit of a, a bit of a hint as to where they would be going in, ter- in terms of musically, in terms of singles, at least, uh, within the next year and a half or so, uh, with the album that's coming out after this one, but uh, a fantastic rocker and just nothing but great memories of seeing this one live and, uh, seeing Chris and Jay. And I think even Patrick gets in vocally at the end of the song here in yes. the sort of stacked vocal Sloan super voice, if you will, as you've, as you've referred to it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, just a fantastic song from Mr. Ferguson here. Uh, you know, I wanted to point that out as well. Um, in the outro, you got all three singing backing vocals, um, which sounds perfect. And you have Patrick in a bit of a lower register and his voice really comes to fruition there because it's quite, he's got a pretty meaty voice. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to touch on this over and over again when we talk about between the bridges but the producer really comes he comes to play ball in this song right listen to the subtle use of synthesizers in the verses you know listen to the mix of the guitars again there's subtle use of acoustic guitars um in sort of the pre-chorus bit uh i love that you just get slapped in the face when this song starts um one thing I find a bit curious, and maybe you can provide me your insights into this as a drummer yourself. This is where I really noticed that the way in which the drums were mic'd and mixed 
tends to emphasize the symbols quite a bit. So if you listen to the song when it starts, and if, especially if you're listening at sort of a, a, a mid-volume, you, you don't have your studio earphones on, but you know you might be listening in your living room on your on your hi-fi, you just hear crash, 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 crash. And you know, snare toms and, and kick aren't mic'd quite as loudly, which is stands in contrast to a couple of a couple of their albums in which and you know you can take one chord to another as an example where the drums are basically recorded in a closet. Um, but it's an interesting way of adding some really ethereal effect to the to the overall production quality. Um, and you notice it really well in the introduction to this song because Andrew's just riding the crash the whole time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of highs going on. I mean, other than sensory deprivation, it's the most upbeat, sort of out there, wild song on the record. And it could just be a matter of, you know, like he, the, yeah, the, it's just, just a lot of crash going on. So, <laughs> you know, listening to it, I would assume on a certain system, you're just going to get a lot of that high end. It propels the song forward. Um, I love the chord progression here. D, B, flat, F, C. For the chorus, it's got a really kind of... That that builds up quite a bit of tension. It's lyrically, I think, you know, in comparison to a lot of what Jay has been putting out there, a really simple concept. And I think that's because he's just telling a story, as you mentioned. Uh, It's a caricature of, of, of one particular person. Um, but as you mentioned, this is some, this is a song that I didn't appreciate as much until I saw it live and live. It just, you know, it, it knocks your socks off. Another interesting thing as we move through the album here, I think it would be a, a, a poignant move here to hit uh, the final song on the album, The Closer, Delivering Maybes, which is a, another amazing Andrew song uh, on an album, again, full of just incredible songs from everybody. Andrew, with who, who opened the record with the NS, uh, you know, clobbered everybody with sensory deprivation on the A side. Here we are, we come to the final song on the album, and Delivering Maybes is just another great upbeat rocker, but it's an Andrew Scott rocker. So it's going to be, you know, a little off kilter. It's going to take some left turns here and there musically. Um, and another one that I would love to see, I mean, it's not going to happen, I'm sure, anytime soon, because generally they, they end their shows with big crowd-pleasing singles, but an, or at least a great way to end, you know, uh, set A before the break, you know, and before they come back to hit to hit all the hits. But um, I, I don't think I've ever seen it. I would love to see this. I know when they've performed it live that they actually have the audience sing the round at the end. On and on we roam around this world delivering maybe some baby. It's not that bad now. Um, I've definitely heard tell that they have the audience sing this uh, in the round. And what an awesome you know, little moment to be a part of that. And uh, yeah, so again, looking through the lyrics of this song, it's, it's hard to sort of tell what he's singing about specifically again they've strayed from the idea of this being a concept album of about halifax which i think you said earlier was just sort of maybe uh sort of an initial thought an initial entree into the album but um clearly in a different place here um you know yeah and we can i think this is a nice concluding thought in a minute but before before we conclude i'd like to touch upon a few things in this song um and first of all, point out to you that you have seen this live. Um, in fact, we've both seen this live uh, at a concert on the 19th of February, 2000 at the Ottawa Congress Center, right. which um, I, for a long time, believed was my first Sloan concert until I remembered that I was at Parliament Hill for the 98 show. Uh, and this was, um, for me, an interesting experience because the venue itself wasn't particularly suited well suited to the show 
Um, right. It was, you know, the Ottawa Congress Centre doesn't exist in that form anymore, but it was really a conference centre. It was just um, a big, which, the room was like a big rectangle, yeah. It was a big rectangle. The acoustics were shit. Uh, it could house, I think the reason why they might have booked it was uh, places like Barrymore's and places in the market were probably too small at that point in time to to really do Sloan justice. So they might have had a thousand to 1500 people come to the show uh, as opposed to the, maybe the 500, um, 500 person venues. So I was fairly close to the front. I didn't at that point in time, wasn't um, a concert goer who went right up to the stage um, because I was still a kid. But I recall being there. I, rec- I recall the flashing lights having opened for them. Um, and I remember them pulling out the roads for, for a few songs. I can't recall if they, if Andrew was on the roads for delivering babies, I want to say yes. Um, if anybody was on, anybody had been to any of the shows um, on the Between the Bridges tour and can recall if delivering babies was performed on the roads uh, by Andrew, then that would be great if you could let us know. But, um, and Rob, you and I, just in discussing our preparation for this episode, um, sort of realized that we were at the same concert uh, back in February of 2000. So that's that's a fun fact. Totally cool. And actually, speaking of, thank you, Google. I just pulled up the set list. And I don't know how accurate this is. It could be just that somebody plugged it in. But you're correct. I did see Delivering Maybes Live in February of 2000. Here they are ending the show with it. Um, so very cool. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. I... That year, 2000, I actually saw the band a handful of times. Um, I was living in Kitchener, Ontario, but getting a little bit of independence, uh, riding the bus <laughs> around the province. <laughs> and I, I remember busing to this show and staying with a friend, Hi Jess Rock, and uh, busing to Toronto to attend the Massey Hall show there. And I was there completely by myself. <laughs> and I think I had I'd met up that night with some Sloan Chat people. And uh, there was a woman who was a part of Sloan Chat at the time named Bonnie, who was nice. She was from Boston, as far as I recall, who was nice enough to let me stay in the hotel room that she and some friends had. I kind of slept on that like pull-out cot or whatever. <laughs> and, then, and then got up at uh, like, you know, six in the morning and went to the bus stop. Because I was going to just basically go to the bus station and wait all night and then, you know, go home in the morning. And she was nice enough to let me stay. But anyway, quick little sidetrack there but uh, yeah i was definitely sloan super fanning you know not unlike today but certainly i can get around if you know if i need to but at the time was just yeah taking the bus everywhere i was following these guys around and at the ottawa show uh they're playing pretty much the whole album from between the bridges from the look of the set list they're opening with friendship into all by ourselves um which i think again is the true a combination of songs as it would have appeared on the, the album had the album been in its original order anyway so yeah so they're playing uh yeah so i was i was just all over the map following these guys around in 2000 uh and that really didn't let up over the next few years as we'll talk about certainly on the show uh but yeah they open with friendship and they go into all by ourselves which is of course the order of those songs as they would have originally appeared on between the bridges if it had been in the original order um and then they go through yeah they're playing pretty much the whole album they're playing some songs from navy blues here um take it in makes an interesting uh, appearance here which i would assume was in the encore uh, and they also play at the edge of the scene, which is my uh, one of my favorite B sides. Uh, and it's it's important maybe to quickly touch on those too. Yeah, I recall from the show them having played "Waiting for Slow Songs," which was at that point in time one of my favorite on the album. And I recall then going to my next show. I think that that was um, probably two. 
2001 uh, for Pretty Together and being so disappointed that they didn't put out Waiting for Slow Songs again. In fact, I don't think I've seen it since then. Uh, I know that they don't play it very frequently for good reason because it is hard to pull off live um, with all the guitar parts going on there. If we just roll back to delivering maybes, you know, it doesn't strike you as being that classical Andrew style of really cerebral, eclectic, you know, lyricism that you don't necessarily understand. It's It's a kind of a light on its feet song in terms of Andrew's standards, which is interesting. Um, I think you could probably shelve the NS into that category at least halfway, uh, at least in terms of what you're doing in the chorus there. Um, what I find really interesting is that they, you know, in terms in terms of the song selection and and the way in which they put the album together, is that they chose to include an Andrew song as the intro and the outro to the album, mm-hmm. and that these Andrew songs, they fade in and they fade out. Right, so the album starts, and we can we can talk about conspiracy theories about this having been a concept album. But if you're going to put together a concept album, then what better way to have it fade in to to an Andrew song in this case, and then fade out in the final song? So it, it feels as though this album just came out of something that had already existed, and then fades out into something that's going to go on forever. Right, it mm. lasts forever. So what an interesting choice! It's perfectly bookended for sure um yeah awesome song i definitely put it in the category of andrew's song like you said that's a little lighter very catchy chorus uh similar in vain maybe to 2006 i've got to try uh from never hear the end of it which kind of brings us to our final point uh that you were going to bring up um i do want to quickly touch on briefly just the two b-sides from the record we mentioned at the end of the scene i would love to do a deep dive into that song sometime where we just discuss how each of the verses is about a different member of the band and sort of deciphering who jay is singing about specifically um also summer's my season uh which is a chris song which was a demo from the navy blues days and um fantastic again another favorite chris song here coming showing up as a b-side both of these songs could have been on on the album but of course these guys are tasteful enough to leave off things that maybe don't connect musically or where where that sort of musical moment has already happened on the record they don't need to have it twice um another b-side at the time on the much music uh, compilation was glad to be here, which was a B side from the Navy Blues sessions, as far as I know. Um, and it's so funny to hear all these songs and to see Glad to Be Here. We're only like a year later here, um, yeah. after Navy Blues came out, and yeah, to me, the Navy Blues songs and these songs couldn't sound more different. They're definitely that's right. They're on their own albums. You know, the albums don't, it's Sloan and everything, and, and they're instantly recognizable, but they're very much their own standalone projects. They don't sound alike to me at all. Uh, no. And it's it's so funny to see listed here at the edge of the scene, Summer's My Season, and Glad to Be Here being B-sides, because Glad to Be Here just feels so much like a Navy Blues track, you know, and of that it, sort of It vibe. feels almost like a one chord to another track from the way it was recorded, um, mm. in, my, in my opinion. I know that Patrick had girl in case kicking around for for a while before it was finally recorded for glad to be here and i i might be mistakening this for a different song but wasn't that part of an edge fest compilation that they put out and it's a perfect it's a perfect edge fest song isn't it i mean it's got that summery happy-go-lucky quality to it um it's kind of got that you know jaded type of lyricism and patrick in love with this with this pretty girl and 
you know, everybody makes so much of at the edge of the scene and summer's my season. And they're really fan favorites in terms of alternate tracks. Um, Japanese fans of Sloan have been lucky over the years to get these on their releases of the albums, but where are you going to put summer's my season and, 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 uh, at the edge of the scene within the track lists of between the bridges, because they just sonically sound completely different. You know, at, at the edge of the scene, you have two songs in one with a tempo change, <laughs> What, are you, how are you going to do that in the between the bridges cloth, which is so so coherent and really so org- organic and you know mushed together with this wonderful roads? Yeah. You know, in summer's my season. It's just almost melancholic uh, in, in many ways, even though the text is just brilliant, right? I love it, and 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 I'm in reading in the Navy Blues book about how Chris was maybe perhaps somewhat um, influenced by the local rabbit song Sally and Style Denial, where he kind of pulls that. Styles in Denial line from was just a mind blower to me when I read that because I was very much a local rabbits guy, you know, after seeing them open for Sloan. But I always just really felt that those bands were just of two different worlds. And to hear that Chris sort of maybe dipped his toe into their lyrics and pulled out a fish and put it on his wall, if you will, was just sort of really interesting to me. Um, but yeah, I can't imagine any the album opening with anything other than the NS. Uh, and I think that at the edge of the scene would be an interesting alternate opening song. Um, but yeah, NS is perfect in that split in that place. And where, where are you going to put those songs? Like you said, so they're, they're excellent B sides, uh, as is yeah. the case with Sloan, just quality B sides. Um, but yeah, and, and in closing thoughts, I know we wanted to touch on never hear the end of it uh, from the beginning of the conversation again, which I'll let you take over in just a moment, but yeah, yeah. You know, it, we're at the end of the decade here. 1999 is coming to a close with the release of this album. They're obviously touring. Um, but they started off this decade as a new band forming in 1990 and uh, on, you know, they're young guys and they're coming from different musical backgrounds and they're sort of gelling into this one sort of style that was popular in the early nineties. And they, they, they take the, the road less traveled with their next album and they kind of come into their own on one chord of Navy blues. And here they are a couple albums into sort of feeling themselves out and getting comfortable. They're ending the decade as a fully realized four headed monster with you know individual characters writing, I would say of the, of the decade, their strongest album just in, in its totality, just where every song is just a complete a plus home run. Yeah. So just so cool to see this band, make this journey through the 90s as we focus on 98 and 99 here here they are at the end of 99 like i said fully formed fully realized and this is the band that's going to sort of set up shop and just start cranking out albums in this um formation going forward it's it's amazing to think that one chord to another is just three years before between the bridges you know what happened in those three years is incredible right and of course you can make a lot about what happened in in the three to four years prior to one chord to another and the band having been signed to geffen and then having dropped out of that deal and then almost breaking up and then coming back and you know that a lot happened at that point in time and as a fan when you're following the band in the 90s in these in these three-year periods it just seemed like an eternity right for me it felt like an eternity between between the bridges and pretty together it was a year and a half basically i guess two years it was two years um you know nowadays that's nothing but back then there was so much happening and of course when you get a a band that puts out three albums within the course of 18 months and accompanies those three albums with a bunch of singles with a bunch of alternates 
um, with basically three separate marketing campaigns that were seen all over music media in Canada. Uh, you kind of get antsy and you're waiting for that next album to come. And we can touch on that when we do touch on Pretty Together, which I feel is a criminally underrated album amongst Sloan fans. And I think even amongst the musicians in Sloan themselves. So I'm willing to challenge anybody in the band about their own opinion about that album. But one thing I do want to touch on as a closing thought, and this is something that I touched upon in the first part of this um, episode. If Sloan would have said, in may of 1998 you know what guys we have so many great tracks here um that we can polish off and put together as a double album would there have ever been a never hear the end of it in 2006 you know the the logical conclusion is no because they wouldn't have had the gumption to do that again and i'm assuming that the the double album with all of Navy Blues's materials, plus maybe a few off of Between the Bridges that weren't quite quite ready yet, probably wouldn't have charted quite as well. Um, the sales wouldn't have been quite as good. I think that even though Between the Bridges was, in quotes, a flop commercially in the States, uh, and to a certain extent in Canada, it's definitely something that's become a fan favorite for for reasons that we mentioned here uh, production quality songwriting quality you know these are songs that they'd already had ready a year and a half earlier so they basically had a year and a half to perfect them handpicked best material from the course of three to four years at the peak of their songwriting uh so what, what we're seeing is, is something that results in a super cohesive package and a stylistic fingerprint that was unique at the time and that we haven't really seen since, but something that you mentioned, Rob, is that this was really not just the end of that, I would say, mid-phase career of Sloan. So everything for, I would, ranging from one chord to another to between the bridges, but it was also the beginning of the mature phase of Sloan's artistry, you know, dabbling in different types of songwriting, dabbling in different types of production, dabbling in different genres as well, to a certain extent. Um, and this is something that we'll see come to great fruition in pretty together in two years. Yeah. Great, great point. And I think that, you know, they had a year and a half to kind of whip between the bridges uh, into good shape, but also, I mean, they were incredibly busy. I mean, Between the Bridges was made amid the craziness of Navy Blues and the ensuing tour and the the double live album and everything. So, you know, to see Between the Bridges in its perfect state, uh, to come out of that crazy, what must have been turmoil um, of being like, you know, a, a huge band and, 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 you know, great, you know, sales are out of the, off the charts and they're, they're playing tons of shows and stuff and everybody's in love with them, you know, to, to pull that album out. Um, like you said, by comparison to Navy blues, you know, perhaps might not have sold as much, but just in, in the, in the hearts of us, you know, hardcore fans, it's a, it's a favorite for sure. Uh, and it's just a perfect album, you know, and, and, and it's easy to argue as Sloan fans that all yeah. their albums are perfect. And, and that's for sure. You know, the, I, I certainly hold that opinion, but this one in particular, just like there isn't a song that I would ever skip on it under any circumstances. Uh, it's just such a perfect bookended listening experience like we talked about earlier. And, 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 and you know, life happens and, and history happened the way it did. You know, they ended up skipping the double album with Navy Blues and something that they'd been doing for a long time, which you can see in the B-sides, is these little pieces of songs that don't really exist yet. The Glenn, the Glenn Campbell demo from Navy Blues yeah. that we touched on. Those little pieces 
by the time 2005 rolls around, Andrew hasn't had an album since Pretty Together. And they've just got these little pieces of songs here and there. And it's like, you know what? How about we just make, we'll just record everything we've got or as much as everything we can uh, and just sew it together and just make it work. And with, with um, Never Hear the End of It, which is another one I can't wait to talk about. It's definitely probably my favorite album. Uh, if I had, if I was forced to, gun to my head, pick a favorite. Um, and with 30 songs, it's just a perfect cohesion of different styles and they just make all of the transitions work with all the different song writing material that's there. Um, so definitely something to look forward to as well. But yeah, that's, that's, that's how, that's how the cookie crumbled. And we got, you know, with, with the absence of a double I or a double Navy blues record, rather we end up in 2006, uh, you know, a line you could say being drawn in the sand between the early fans and the fans that are just going to be with these guys for the rest of their lives, no matter what. And I think, you know, it's been said that as of never hear the end of it, that distinction is sort of firmly made and, That's right. um, yeah. And, and, and a great place to sort of jump off of. Let's, let's continue on that thought in our next episode. So mm-hmm. for everybody who's listening, we just went through 98 and 99. We're going to skip ahead to 2006 on our next episode to talk about both of our favorite album, Never Hear the End of It. Absolutely. Slownocracy at its <laughs> finest, Between the Bridges to Never Hear the End of It. I'm looking forward to this. Guys, it's been great having you. Uh, keep slowing. Tune in next time. Smash that like button. Uh, and uh, don't forget to follow us on Instagram at Sloancast. Sloancast.